Hi, I'm Justin Kraft. I'm with uh, the podcast Influence Now. And today we're talking with Jacqueline Fu from Pepper or wherepepper.com. I don't know which one you prefer, Jacqueline. Uh, but uh, she has a great startup story and we're really excited to have her on today to discuss some of the things that she's going through with uh, this is a, a broad company. I'll let her explain that in a minute and uh, I'll leave it, leave it at that. So tell us, uh, tell us what you do and uh, more importantly, um, why you do it, Jacqueline. Yeah, um, so I'm Jacqueline, co-founder of Pepper. We started about a year ago, and our whole concept is that we make better-fitting bras for small-chested women. Um, so you might think, well, isn't there already something out there, or what about the Victoria's Secrets of the world? So how we're approaching it differently is what we noticed was, yes, there are bras out there for everyone, but even though we see the rise of the body positivity movement and the rise of plus size and the increasing of the size range, we don't see it for other, the other side of the spectrum. Um, so we noticed a lot of our customers complain they have a gap issue. So we're taking a design thinking approach to all our products and eliminating all of these fit issues that our target audience experiences. So having said that, your target audience being, um, being women that are smaller chested typically, um, how did this idea originally come about? So, so you're obviously filling a need that's out there, um, especially with the, the movement that, that's been happening for people to just be empowered in their own bodies and be comfortable with themselves and how they look already. Um, kind of tell us the story, the background of how you kind of came about and how the company became what it is now. Yeah, I think, you know, we started as a bra company, but the larger thing we're trying to do is change perceptions and body image standards and start the conversation of what it truly means to be confident in the body you have. Um, because they say the grass is always greener, you know, maybe if you have small boobs, you want big boobs and vice versa, but we're just saying whatever you have, feel great in, with that body. Um, so for me, when I was growing up, there was a lot of things I saw in the media that told me one body was better than the other. Um, so it was difficult for me to accept what I have. So I'm you know, in the target audience. I have a lot of friends who are. And the more I talk to them, the more I notice these subtle nuances of them putting down their body or other people body shaming. Um, you might see in cartoons or those high school movies, boys who make fun of girls who are flat chested. And even today, when I tell people, yeah, it's a broad company for small chest or flat chested women, they're like, wait, don't use those words because you might insult women. And that brings up a good point of why would it be an insult to say someone is small-chested? Why should that ring alarm bells not to use those words? And those are the perceptions we're trying to change. Um, so for me, when I tried going bra shopping, I tried all these different bras from every different price point, and nothing fit perfectly. So I went to my co-founder, Leah, and um, she's Colombian, and her body type is opposite of me, so on the other side of the sizing spectrum. And she said, well, isn't every bra made for your body type? And we said, no. So we started talking to more customers, and what we found was a lot of people who were in this target audience agreed. We actually did a survey for about 840 small-chested women, and 71% said Victoria's Secret doesn't fit them. And that's a really high number because Victoria's Secret is the majority of the market. So we got to work buying a bunch of bras, taking notes of what fit, what did it and then was Lee and I did a hacky PowerPoint presentation of a drawing of a bra, shapes and arrows of what we wanted to change, and then we found a factory to start working on this prototype. That's fantastic. And I'm not gonna to pretend to be an expert on bras. <laughs> so but um <laughs> yeah, but but 
And the idea behind it is, is the fact that we live in a world now where I think more and more people should really learn to be accepting of each other and also just, just be happy with who you are as a person and how you were born. Not saying there's a negative. If you want to improve yourself and, and, and that's what you want to do, go for it. You know, plastic surgery, all that stuff. But if you really, truly want to be comfortable in who you are, I think this is a great product that's out there. Knowing a lot, I have a lot of women friends that clothes just don't fit them the right way. And this would be an excellent thing for them. And I've been telling everyone I know about this, um, your product in particular, um, because I, I really do feel like it, it's fitting a niche need that even though it's addressed with some of the bigger manufacturers, it's not addressed to the level that you're addressing it, which is fantastic. Um, I think there's an emotional vein that we're hitting too, because whenever we get featured on press, I always read the Facebook comments, even though I know I shouldn't. <laughs> and there's there's this turf war that ends up always going on in these Facebook comments. Uh, women who are larger chested commenting, why are you even focusing on the small chested group? We're the ones with the true problems. So then the other side comes back and says, no, you, you know, you don't understand what it's what it's like to not wear a bra that fits small chested women. So all of a sudden, there's this really heated back and forth debate, and I'm just thinking, well, why can't everyone's problems just be valid? Um, why do we need to put down other women's issues and feel like our issues are more important? So that that has become really apparent, and that's also something that we want to change: is have these conversations more in the open and letting everyone you know, vent and complain and we're all in this together, right? Everyone has issues. Yeah. And, and just because you're one way or the other doesn't mean one side's right and the other side's wrong. Um, it, it, there should just be a product for everybody. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and some of the population is this way and some of the population is that way. And we should all uh, be able to work with that. And the fact that you're filling this niche is just, uh, it's super exciting and it's great. Um, I do want to ask you actually, it wasn't a GoFundMe campaign. Remind me what, what type of campaign you ran. Kickstarter campaign. Kickstarter campaign. So you ran a Kickstarter campaign, and I was extremely impressed uh, with with how well it did. And I, I I think a lot of our listeners would like to know because I, I run into this a lot when I'm out talking to to folks about their startups, um, how to run their companies, or they're starting a nonprofit. I sit on the board for a nonprofit. They're wanting to run a GoFundMe campaign or a Kickstarter campaign. They just don't know how to go about doing it the right way and feel like there's a timing behind it and they're not sure, should we do it now, should we do it later, whatever it is. Could you tell us a little bit about what you did, a little bit about your success first, and then a little bit about what you did, to because you had an amazing success story, story with this, a little bit more about what you did and, and how you did it and what advice you'd give to those folks. So we launched our Kickstarter campaign in April 2017, and their initial goal was $10,000 because that's what our factory required of us as a minimum manufacturing um, level. So we thought at this time I also was still at my 9 to 5 job, so we thought this would be a cute little side project. If we met the minimum manufacturing requirements and sold it all, cool, it would be a success already. Um, and then when we launched it, in the first 10 hours, we already met the $10,000 mark. And then at a 13-day campaign, we were at almost $50,000 and we had 950 backers. We actually were supposed to have a longer campaign that ran for a month, not just 13 days, but because I wanted to push it live at 5 in the morning, um, I, I accidentally set it to 13 days. <laughs> 
So, so and the reason why, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I cut you off. <laughs> um, the reason why we wanted to do a Kickstarter campaign in the first place was since Lee and I both had our full-time jobs, we weren't willing to risk everything and jump headfirst um, into an area that we didn't even know whether people would want. Because I know it solved my problem and it solved problems of my immediate friends, but is it just us or are there other people out there? So Kickstarter was a way to de-risk it. And it was great because we funded our first manufacturing order all from the backers. Um, so once we had success of the Kickstarter campaign, that was when we both left our jobs. And can you tell, I, th I think you told me you raised something like $47,000 in the first three days as a result of this. Is, is, is that the number? Do I have that right? Or, uh, we ended the campaign after 13 days at almost $50,000. Almost $50,000. That's what it was. I, that's just an amazing story from what I've heard from a lot of Kickstarter campaigns that are out there. And I think the key, and, and I want to get your opinion. I want to dig a little deeper into this because I think this is a really relevant topic. Um, what is the key to the success with that? Was it because you were filling, you, you kind of tested whether or not you were fitting a need in a niche that really did exist, first of all. Um, you had an, a, a hypothesis around that. But fitting that need, is it because it was so successful because it actually filled a huge gap that existed? And is that the main advice you give anybody that's running a true Kickstarter campaign? Because I think a lot of times people, they run these campaigns and it's just, hey, I'm starting a t-shirt company or, you know, it's not really fit, fulfilling a huge need out in the market, and that's why they don't have a whole lot of success with it. It's mostly just friends and family. So it, could you give us a little bit of the advice behind that and what you would do um, if somebody's looking into this? I think in retrospect, um, it was such a big success because we were so averse to risk in the beginning. Um, so everything that we did was validation one step at a time, and we never spent too much money at once. We never invested too much in one single channel or tactic. Uh, we just did a lot of little tests. Um, so in the beginning, the big open question was, you know, is this something people are even interested in? We didn't have a product at that time. We only had the story and the messaging. Um, so what we did, we, we set up a landing page. We did it on Wix. It cost us almost nothing, um, but we just wanted to get something out there. And we had an email, newsletter, subscription sign-up. And then from there, we just started collecting a lot of email addresses. Um, we started posting more content. We started an Instagram account, which is where a lot of our leads came from. So we started about two months before we launched the Kickstarter. And by the time we launched the Kickstarter, we had an email list of about 600 people. Um, so that was, I think, one of the reasons why Kickstarter did so well was because we already had a list of very, very interested people who were likely going to convert. Um, I think we had a 13% conversion rate from that list in the first few days. Um, the second thing that we did was um, we really rallied our friends and family groups. So it wasn't a post the day of launch and then asking everyone to contribute. We started weeks before starting a drip campaign where we started emailing people, asking for smaller call to actions, and then closer to the Kickstarter campaign, we would start asking for a bigger call to action. And then we started doing follow-ups, um, and we started tracking everything. So we knew um, about 20% of all our Kickstarter rewards were from friends and family. So we were really diligent about tracking everything as well. And I think the third thing that led to our success was 
we were really hands-on with our initial backers and being really authentic with our early community because these were the people who really believed in us. Like I said, we didn't even have a product. It was the messaging alone that they were willing to give us money for. So we were emailing them all the time, communicating what was going on, asking them for help, asking them to share their stories, and they drove a lot of additional traffic as well. So what I'm hearing there um, to summarize is building a brand reputation while fulfilling a problem that exists in the market, then it's actually being strategic about your approach leading into the campaign by doing maybe a drip email campaign or something along those lines. And then from there is just the contact, the local localized network that you have, and some of the people that already believe in you um, and making sure they're tapped in and spreading the word on the product. Is that is that the main three things summarized? Yeah. And, and yes. I think I think it's I think it's just a it's a great success story and a lot of people don't do all of those things going into it. They're just like, hey, I'm going to do a Kickstarter campaign and this is going to work. What you did is actually be very strategic about it, building a brand first, fulfilling a need first, then going about your Kickstarter campaign, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. So and two weeks before we launched, we also started doing a lot of press outreach. Um, so that work happened also months before when we started looking up. Um, different articles that people have written about this category or people who might be interested about writing about us. So we had a list of, I think, 200 potential press contacts we wanted to reach out to by the time we launched. And we started pitching ourselves. It was just us two pitching and emailing. And we ended up getting some pretty amazing coverage as well, such as Huffington Post, Cosmopolitan, Daily Mail. Um, and that also drove a lot of traffic. Yeah, you guys have gotten a ton of run um, for, for just being uh, where you're at and the stage you're at right now. Um, as a company, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> because you're filling a true niche out in the market, and right now empowerment is a huge topic and a trending topic. So, um, it's great to hear this uh, success story, uh, which I think is going to be a further success story down the road here in the near future. Um, so, I want to get back to actually pepper the brand a little bit, and um, kind of what are you? What are you focusing on and how do you plan on kind of expanding your market further and spreading the word? Um, so the first thing we're focusing on is fulfillment. So we're about to get our first shipment um, in the next few weeks, crossing fingers, everything goes well. So that is probably top of mind right now, making sure everything gets into the country, right? Figuring out customs, like there's all these things I never thought I would have to learn, um, but we are now. So we're also setting up our warehouse for the first time, thinking about the return experience. So it's very nitty gritty operations right now, but it's also really fun. Um, so we're focusing a lot on that. And the second part, once we fulfill, we're thinking about product expansion. So our growth strategy isn't normal where you just expand your, your bra size range and then you expand your products and you try to you know just do everything under the sun. We're going to be really targeted in that we're only going to focus on this size demographic, really cater to this niche audience and really understand their needs. Um, so from an undergarment perspective, um, what other products don't fit them right now. So we think, for example, a strapless bra, a wireless bra, and then also beyond undergarments, what about clothes? How do clothes fit this target audience? And then start looking at that. Um, for me personally, a lot of dresses don't fit me well, so maybe we start offering dresses in the future. Um, so thinking about solving problems for this one audience rather than solving problems for many different type of people. So you're gonna you're gonna soon become the a, a Lululemon of of the small chested market. <laughs> That's yeah, how. I'm <laughs> I want to do 
too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I, I love your, your growth strategy. And that actually, I had another question related to where you're kind of seeing yourself in three years. And that actually answers that question. You actually see yourself becoming broader uh, than just than just a, a, an undergarment brand and actually expanding out into full garment because this niche has these needs that is under fulfilled at the moment. Exactly. Okay. And because I have a slant kind of toward marketing and, and we kind of hit on the PR topic earlier, I would like to hear your thoughts around, you know, maybe the tips you can give our audience, um, maybe three things that every small business or startup should consider in their marketing um, or, or even in their PR strategy. I, I put those two things together um, because I, I really feel like the PR on the top end of building your brand, like you were talking about earlier before you did your Kickstarter campaign, really getting that that name out there first just adds so much legitimacy to your company, but also making sure that your product is in a place where that brand is going to hold when you go out to get that PR. But what would be the, like the three tips you would give our, our, our audience on, you know, starting out your marketing and how you should go about that? Uh, my first tip would be to be really authentic with your story. I think the reason why press contacts were willing to listen to us, even though we couldn't send them samples to review, for example, uh, was because we had a really compelling story that no one else was talking about. Um, and we told it in a way that was really personal um, and, and real. And the, the way we got there having an awesome story was by talking to as many customers as we could in the early days. Um, we went out and did focus groups. We hosted something called bra parties. Um, we did a lot of surveys. We did a lot of one-on-one -on -one calls with friends of friends of friends. Um, just to gather as much language as we could because the more we were able to use um, the customer's language to, to describe their problem and to describe the world they live in, um, the more relatable it was for other people. So by the time we got to the Kickstarter campaign, we already had so many good sound bites and stories um, and a really deep understanding of their pain points um, and the press really loved that. They loved the quotes that we provided from our customers as well. Um, the second tip I would give is to find an insight that could help differentiate you from your competitors. Um, so the insight could be that you're, there's a problem out there that no one else is solving, so maybe it's an opportunity. Or maybe the insight is um, you do a survey and you learn that there are solutions out there, but maybe it's not meeting the needs of your customers, which is what we found. Um, and using this insight, we were then able to craft really compelling messaging and value propositions um, that hit its nail, hit the nail on the head. Um, and press also love insights, right? So the more data points that you can come up with and show that no one else has, they're all the more willing to put it in, in their coverage as well. That's that's awesome. Um, I think those are all valuable tips um, in, in making sure your market's in line with what you're trying to do. I really love what you said when it comes to actually doing almost like focus groups by throwing little parties and and figuring out what kind of language they're using without even necessarily maybe even discussing that you have a, a brand coming out. Um, just just figure out what your what your target market's saying and and fix and then matching whatever you're looking at to what they're saying. That's that's an awesome tip yeah. for people. Yeah, people are willing to talk after a few bottles of wine. So we got a lot of <laughs> great, great people that way. And I think when we first came the first post, we didn't even have a product or a brand or an idea yet. It was just, we think there's a problem out there. Is there actually? So, so bonus tip is wine. 
<laughs> so just involve wine and you'll be you'll be good to go um awesome so uh i have a couple of fun questions and then we can we can probably wrap this up for today but i do want to come back to you in a few months here and see where pepper no pun intended where pepper where pepper.com um see where pepper has gone um if you're okay with that, Jacqueline, um, but but yeah. I do I do have some fun questions uh, to kind of go over with you. I, I've been adding these as we as we kind of go with some of our some of our people because I just think uh, you know we had to have, I, I want to add a little more fun to this. So you're a traveler. I know you just went to South America. Um, where have you traveled to and why? And do you feel like traveling? I, I, I look at this. I look at traveling because I'm a huge traveler too. I look at traveling as a a means to open my mind up, free my soul a little bit, and it actually helps me in business. So you're a traveler, where have you traveled and why? And do you feel like traveling provides value to you in the business world? Hmm. Um, so 2017 was a big um, Latin America travel year for me. It was my first time ever in South America. I don't know why I waited until 2017 to do it. Um, but I went to Colombia earlier last year because that's where our factory is. Um, and it was amazing. Fruit juices are a dollar versus, you know, $10 in the U.S. Uh, and the people were really nice. And I watched Narcos early in the year as well. And that, you know, changed my perception of what to expect in Colombia. But it's completely different. And I loved it. And the people were just so nice. And I felt pretty safe there. Um, so it, it's really interesting to see things you see in the media versus things in reality when you go there. And that's the central theme, right? That's also something we're trying to battle is in the media, small chested women are portrayed in a negative light, but in reality, like, should it be that case? Um, why can't we accept it for things they are? So it was really interesting to have that similar theme play out as well. And then uh, later last year, we went to Chile, and it was the first time I did a long distance trek. We trekked in Patagonia. And I've never pushed my body that hard physically before. I'm the person who sits in the back of the cycling class that goes really slow um, while everyone is going really hard on level 50, for example. I've been on level two, pretending like I'm going really, really fast. Um, so I never really pushed my body that way. But I was able to do 50 miles in four days. So if I can do it, I think anyone else can do it. Um, but by the end of it, there was this newfound confidence in what my body could do and the strength that it had. And even in those dark, windy, cold, snowy days, and we had seven more miles to go, um, you couldn't give up. You just had to put one foot in front of another and keep going. Um, so I'm, I'm taking that newfound strength into this new year because I think it's going to be a really tough year for Pepper. We're getting it off the ground. We're starting to fill. There's going to be huge challenges this year. Um, but I'm going to remember that time where I finished the trek and I thought, well, I did it. It was painful, but I did it. Yeah, you're going to have snakes all of a sudden, metaphorically. You're going to have <laughs> snakes jump out at you. You're going to have, uh, there's so many things that are going to be unforeseen. You're going to try to prepare for everything, right? But it's just, okay. that's the business world. Um, something will happen and and it's how you react and push through it. So that's great advice. And I think I think that is a super valuable lesson that a lot of people, I mean, for me personally, being a fitness person, that really resonates with me um, is overcoming things. And that's why I do what I do there. Um, so that, that's a fantastic answer. Um, now, one more fun one for you. What would be the hardest thing for you to give up on? Hmm. Um... I would say 
food. Um, so I'm a huge foodie. Um, I grew up in California, so I was blessed with you know, some of the best Chinese food and Asian food in the whole country, I think. Um, so even now, now that I'm in the entrepreneurial route and, you know, you know, can't be spending money crazily anymore, but food is always that thing where it gives you comfort. Uh, um, I'm not I'm willing to give up, you know, other luxuries in life, that coffee every day, but food is one of those things where I, I'm willing to go try new places and, and spend on that. So what is, uh, since you said you were from California, um, we're not in cahoots with any restaurant, but what are, what is your favorite restaurant of all time? Oh man, that one's hard. Um, so I grew up, grew up in a place called Alhambra, California, which is about 15 minutes away from downtown LA. Mm -hmm. And it's probably where, you know, all the most innovative Chinese food comes from in the U.S. I know that sounds really weird, but I think boba started there, and then it got big everywhere else. I think shaved ice got got big there, and then you know spread. So it's a hotbed of food innovation. Um, so it would be really hard for me to pick just one, but I would pick that location um, and everything within that vicinity. I would say is my favorite. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so awesome, awesome. So we can wrap this up. Jacqueline, I, I want to thank you for being on today. If you could do me a huge favor and plug your company, because I, I really feel like, especially for women that are looking for a product like this, this is an, an amazing product. I know, I know you're going to have more lines of stuff coming out soon. Um, so where can they find you? How can they find you? And what should they do to connect with you? Awesome. Um, so Pepper makes better fitting bras for small chested women. Um, we are available online at www.wearpepper.com, W-E-A-R pepper.com. Um, and to get a hold of me, feel free to email me, Jacqueline at wearpepper.com. I'm also really active on Twitter. Um, but we have a thriving online community as well. So to this topic, um, please do feel free to get in touch with me. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I will actually put, you know, wherever we have this podcast listed and wherever we have this podcast, all of our podcasts, we always put our guests all the information, whether Facebook groups they're involved with, um, Facebook, where to reach out to them, Twitter, whatever their preferences of being reached, your preferences basically anyway, <laughs> in which way possible. Um, and wherepepper.com is the, the website. Um, make sure you do connect with uh, Influence Now podcast. Follow us, subscribe to us as well. And we have some amazing speakers coming up. Jacqueline, you've been one of my favorites so far. Um, I'm sure uh, we got we got a lot more that a lot more answers that we keep on getting people out that want answers to certain marketing questions and things like that and great storytelling. So we're gonna we're gonna provide all that stuff for our audience. So thank you again for being on, and uh, we'll talk to everyone soon.